Hi, and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Have a very special guest joining me today, my friend, Dana Perino. Dana, of course, is the host of The Daily Briefing on Fox News Channel. She's also the co-host of The Five, as well as a great podcast with Chris Steierwald. Dana, of course, was the first Republican woman to serve as White House Press Secretary under George W. Bush. She actually worked for the president for seven of his eight years in office, and that's where Dana and I got to know each other. So it's a real privilege to have her on today. Dana is also a best-selling author. One of her books is entitled, And the Good News Is. And if there's ever been a time in which we needed some good news and some perspective on putting all of this darkness into uh, perspective and looking on the bright side, this would be it. Dana, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm honored. I love this podcast. And I'm a podcast connoisseur. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. This one is excellent. You are so sweet. You are very kind. And as I mentioned to you, I'm really excited that this worked out for you to be my 100th guest and 100th episode. So this is very special. Thank you very much. Century ride. <laughs> exactly. So how are you doing first and foremost? You've had to recreate your Fox News Channel studio in your living room. What has this experience been like? What does what your living room look like right now? Well, you know, Fox News was kind of farther ahead than I was when it suggested, hey, you might want to um, think about where do you want to be if we have to not be in the building. And I was like, oh, well, I, I live walking distance from the studio. Like, it'll be fine. Um, but they were thinking ahead. And they came to, we have a house, uh, we rent an apartment in, Manhattan, but we have our weekend house um, here in Bayhead, New Jersey. Well, that's where so, you are, is in New Jersey versus the Yeah, that's where we came. Um, partly because I started reading all these stories about people in Spain who weren't even really allowed to go outside much, with, even with their dog. And of course, my dog's a big part of our life. And um, I asked Fox, I think, would it be possible for me to be in Bayhead? And they're so flexible and said yes. So we came down here and we have a guest bedroom. So it's not, I don't have the studio in my living room. It's actually in this guest bedroom where we just push the twin beds against the wall. And we have a big 90 inch screen that I can have the different backdrops for the different shows that I do. Uh -huh. um, is, just can just call them up on the computer. And then we have wires going up and duct taped and things. But a few things I've noticed, I'm, I'm grateful to be working. Um, we're working quite a lot. I've been able to do all of my responsibilities at Fox. I've been able to do very seamlessly here. Uh, the technology, just say we haven't had that many problems. Um, there's a little delay when you're on remote like this, so that can result in some verbal bumper cars and a little bit of awkwardness on television. But I think when I look up at Fox News um, and compare it to some other networks, I actually think that our, our look in the middle of all this difficulty is actually looking pretty good. Um, I've, I've kept the same routine that I had before because I have to do all of my same responsibilities, but there has been something that has changed a lot for me. And I was actually been thinking about this a lot because I don't know how to keep it when I go back to normal. And that is that um, I was really quite overstretched as a lot of people are. Mm -hmm. um, and if I live in New York and people come to New York from 
all over for business and everybody wants coffee and lunch and dinner and charity events and, and I have a hard time saying no. I don't have a lot of spare time during my day. I don't go to breakfast or coffees or lunch because I don't have time because of the two o'clock and the five o'clock show. Um, and I was feeling very overstretched. And when people would say like, what's one thing that you would like to change? I'm like, oh, I'd love to have more time with my family. And then all of a sudden I have time with my family. Yeah. Like, a lot of it. And I love it. So that doesn't mean that I don't work hard during the day. I do. But um, in the evenings, you know, we even turn off the TV. People talk about all the shows they've streamed. We only watched Ozarks. And then I had a dream that I had to do PR for the drug cartel. <laughs> and I was, at the, I was trying to make sure that they were on message. Yeah. So that was kind of funny. But we, we really have been doing puzzles. Yeah. Um, we've caught up with friends. Um, I also try to read like the Wall Street Journal posts a lot of their content for the next day that the evening before. So I try to get a jump head start on the next day by reading that uh, sometime around nine o'clock. So I've actually really kind of loved this time to slow down. It was like, it was like the pause that I needed. Yeah. So how do you think you capture that and somehow duplicate it or, or maintain some of those practices or maybe figure out which things you can say no to more easily that maybe before you thought were so essential. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this. Maybe I keep talking about it so that I can get people to stop asking me to come to um, coffees and things. <laughs> but I also love all my friends and my contacts and I love to meet people I wanna see and I wanna do and I wanna help. But I did think of one thing. So way back when I worked in the Bush administration, there was a time when I, because of, let's see, I was mid thirties then, a lot of my friends were having children at the time. And Peter and I don't have children. I love children, but I would get invited to all these baby showers. And I really don't like to go to a baby shower. When I say I, I can't stand, I don't like it. It takes up an entire day. It's things that I have no, com I have no ability to have a conversation about. I feel out of place. And I'm like, I have so much work to do or reading to do or things. And it would take up tired. So I would find an excuse. And I often had one when I worked at the White House. Like, oh, I can't because, you know, whatever. Well, this one friend, they kept moving the baby shower to accommodate my schedule. And I was like, I really don't want to go. And I was thinking about how I was going to respond. And I was in a green room and I was listening to President Bush give a speech. And I was kind of listening with just one ear. And he was talking about how it's easier to make decisions if you base your life on your principles. If, if, if tough decisions come to you, if you have a set of principles, it's easier to make a decision. So I decided that day to start a principle for myself, a policy that I don't go to baby showers. And you know what was so interesting? It worked. Because once I told people I have a policy, I'm sorry, I have a policy, I don't go. They stopped inviting me or they would invite me and say, I know you have a policy and you can't come. We just want you to know you're invited. And I always send a gift, but I had that policy. So now I'm starting to wonder, maybe I should take my own advice and have another policy about, actually the CEO of Fox News, um, I, think this, I think I have this correct. She has a policy of only one weeknight event a week. Smart. And if there's three events that are really fabulous, like she chooses one and she doesn't go to the other two. So I, I wonder if I could adopt that for myself. 
Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great idea. Or to just make a list of the things that are truly impactful in your life versus the things that really aren't. Like, what are the things that give you that sort of richness and that you feel really fulfilled from having done them versus the things that are like, uh, you know, something. Well, I also did something the other day. Do you, do you know Adam Grant? Yeah, of course. Okay. So Adam had a column in the New York Times last week um, and he was talking about what's it like to be an introvert during a quarantine. Uh -huh. He said, well, actually, you know, introverts, we still actually want interaction with people. And he linked to a thing called internet um, introvert bingo. Uh -huh. And you can mark on a card how many of these characteristics you have. It kind of surprised me. I was a nine out of 16 on introvert bingo. Interesting. And my life is so public and my work is so public. And I realized that one of the reasons I need to say no to these events is um, my brain feels clearer during the quarantine because I have time to think and reflect and be quiet. So I actually think I would if I can stick to a policy like that, then I might be able to do better at everything, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I do think there is something that is akin to a closet introvert, somebody who is able to be extroverted, like yourself, I feel like I'm mm -hmm. the same way, but really need that time to recharge, or you feel depleted if you have too much of the external stuff that's going on. There's that great book called Quiet. I don't know if you I love that book. Fabulous book. Fabulous book. Okay, so I want to jump into a couple of other things as we think about this, I mean, just incredible time that we're living in. It's very, very scary. People are very anxious. When you think mm -hmm. back to your days as the White House press secretary, of course, you were the first Republican woman to hold that mm -hmm. post. But talk about the lessons that you learned that help you stay centered. You just gave me one, but talk talk about other examples. <laughs> yeah, and 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 trying to look for, you know, the good side of something that is really dark and difficult, and it's going to be horrible for some time for many people for all different reasons. I'm particularly concerned right now for the people who have never ever had to ask the government for help or or, or for charitable help. And they might be in a situation that is so desperate that they have to do that. And that the step from being fine to, to, to then making that decision, like I got to go stand in line at the food bank. That's a, that is tough. I think that one thing I learned from my time at the white house is, well, a few things. One is to, to remember, remember that everything will pass. I mean, there's that old saying, everything, it does pass. It, it will eventually. They, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. There will be a change. There will be something on the other side of this. Um, the other thing I believe is really important is to not think too far ahead. So I, I find this a lot when I do mentoring of young women um, outside of the quarantine. Um, you'll talk to them and maybe they got had a setback. They didn't get the promotion or the job that they wanted. And then all of a sudden they're thinking about 15 years down the road and what this one setback means for them 15 years from now and then they get all spun up and like, you're thinking too far ahead. Um, another thing that I learned to do, I've, I've done this actually since college. I think I would do it a few times at the White House, but it was a practice that really helped me. Um, I would make a list of all of my worries and all of my concerns and then I would make two columns. And at the top of the column, one, I would say, um, is this something I can do something about? Is this something I can control or is this something out of my control? 
and I would mark the worries. Is there something I can do about it? Or is this somebody else's thing? And then I could carry that around with me. And if I started to get a little anxious or panicky about something, I could look at that and I'm like, okay, wait, in order to have the serenity that I crave, and I think a lot of, I think humans crave it, you have to live that serenity prayer. So accept the things you cannot change, the courage to change the things you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And to the extent that there is, you need the courage to do the things that you can, then you can make a, an action list so that you can start working on those things. So I try to ad advise people to take worry and fear and convert that into energy to actually then either do something about it. And actually, people need to know deciding not to do something or deciding to accept that it's not in your control, that is an action item. That means you have done something. And I actually had to learn that from my husband. And when he finally told me, he said, it's okay to not make a decision right away and to let that go. That's a deciding not to decide is a decision. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's really good advice. That's really good. The other thing is I remember on the last day of the White House, we were leaving Andrews Air Base and headed to the airport. And I leaned my head back against the seat and I said, nothing I ever do for the rest of my life will be that important or that hard. And it's really true. Yeah. And it's very, very consequential. You were, you had obviously a big, big role in the Bush 43's White House. You have a big job now, um, very high profile role. It can be easy to let things like this go to your head. You're a very grounded person. You're a very approachable mm -hmm. person. You like people. You're very oriented toward helping them. But how do you maintain that sense of staying grounded? Well, part of it was that I think, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, um, we spent a lot of time on my grandpa's ranch and the, the values of uh, humility um, and patriotism were really grounded all together. Um, also a control of your emotions, like that whole idea of never let them see you sweat, that I live by that. I, I might be absolutely inside panicking, but you will not know it. Um, Though something has happened recently in, in the quarantine. Uh, my, my first day of the job of the daily briefing show, I worried all weekend about what interviews I was going to have, what questions I was going to ask. Did I have the right guess? I was all right. And then I woke up that morning and found out that that Vegas shooting had happened. Mm -hmm. And I think 50 people had died overnight and 500 had been shot. And we had to do that story I mean, that story took over. Every, all my planning went out the window. Um, and there were some interviews that I listened to that would get me near to spilling over with tears. But I, I did learn over time to, to hold that in a little bit. Um, but I find I have to do some exercise to let some of it out. Um, last night, I found out about um, a young colleague at Fox whose brother is a nonverbal autistic person who lives in a residential care facility. And he does not understand why his family isn't coming to see him. They can't visit. And I'm about to cry now. So it's, it's, it's those stories because I'm fine. Like we're fine, but there are so many people. And I just, right before I came here, you know, Elizabeth Warren uh, found out that her, well, her brother died of coronavirus. And in her post, she talks about how nobody was there. So those stories, like I can do it as a news anchor, but it does affect you when you're 
consuming a lot of the negative news. Now, I do also have that show called The Five, mm -hmm. and we just make fun of each other for an hour, and that helps. Yeah. And I think it helps our audience, too. Yeah, well, that notion of finding things to laugh at and be silly. I just had Mary Catherine Ham on mm -hmm. the podcast. Mm -hmm. Who, who talked about her, not only what happened to her, yep. the tragic death of her husband, but she wrote about it in a post related to pandemic parenting and how to keep perspective on, on what's so going beautiful. on. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. it's, it's beautiful, but you know, she, she, she talks a little bit about you know, maintaining that perspective and how incredibly important that is. I remember when I worked at the White House, President Bush, he's a crier, like his dad was. And usually we would cry at something that was nice. Yeah. Not that was tragic, but something that was sweet or something that is kind. And there's a lot of that to go around right now. So that, those have always, those are pick me up stories, but they're the ones that tug at your heart as well. Yeah, yeah. well that was one of, one of Mary Catherine's pieces of advice was find that silly thing during the day to laugh at, whether it's a podcast or some silly comedian. Oh yeah, like my husband Peter, I feel like his part-time job is finding internet memes to laugh at. He'll be collecting in the corner with laughter and my, my assistant are like what tell us and he finds the funniest stuff from England and right <laughs> so one of the things that I this is a big pivot but one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was and it's you know it sort of falls within that bucket of coaching for others you were a communications person then you ultimately became the White House press secretary but for many years had lived helping other people to tell their stories Ultimately, you got this big break at Fox and you, mm -hmm. you had to find your own voice. Talk <laughs> yeah. about, I mean, that can be really hard, especially when for many years you've been trained, it's not about you, it's about the principal. Yeah. How did you make that pivot? How difficult was that? It was really hard because when I started doing the five, even when I was doing, um, even before the five, if I did a guest segment on Fox, it was usually politically related and often it was about, um, uh, something that President Obama had said that was negative about President Bush. How would I respond? And I knew all those points. Like I could do that very easily. Well, when the five started, th nobody cared what President Bush thought. They wanted to know what I thought. Mm -hmm. And so I would get asked questions like, what do you think about legalization of marijuana? And I'd be like, I would freeze. And I would start to say, well, and I would give the Bush administration response. And yeah. I remember Greg Gutfeld, my colleague at one point, said, no, 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 what do you think? And I was like, oh, well, I don't, I don't like it. And then it was like, oh, I had this unpopular opinion because everybody else is for legalization of marijuana. Um, and it was a little bit like dipping my toe into the water. And then Greg literally just pushed me in. And once I realized that, I could have a career change, right? Because part of my reticence was, what if this whole Fox thing doesn't work out? And what if I make it look like I'm too much of this or too much of that, and I hinder my possibility of having a business in the future where people wouldn't take me seriously? I don't know. I'm actually, as I talk about what was going on in my head, I realize how ridiculous it was. But it, it did take me a while to go from being the spokesperson for someone else, of which I was very comfortable doing, to just speaking um, from my own point of view uh, and being comfortable with that. And Fox has been great about that too. You know, um, I can just be myself. It's been a very in freeing experience really. 
it can be hard to not fall into that trap of second guessing yourself, which is kind of what you're talking about. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the voice that, that goes over and over in your head is, well, should you really say it that way? Or maybe you shouldn't have done that. A little well, bit. and also I've been very good ever since I was a kid. And like, I would do it with, with other people. Like my parents got in an argument, like, oh gosh, she shouldn't have said it that way. She should have waited. She should have bought this up. Like I can, I can, I know exactly. I can see a train wreck coming from a PR standpoint from a mile away. So I'm like, I, if I'm about to say something, I can think five steps down the road. Like, I might say this on Tuesday, but is that going to be true on Thursday? And I think that was just a, a training uh, that I had. I'm still pretty cautious with what I say, um, partly because I do uh, respect that there's lots of different opinions out there, lots of different experiences. I'm, I'm very reticent to criticize any uh, White House communications staff so too much because one I've been there and it's usually not a communications problem but a fact problem and we don't have all the information we don't know what they're dealing with so I try to have a light touch when it comes to criticism yeah yeah so the same is probably not true for the people who you know snark at you or criticize you either on social media or you know even people who aim to give you constructive criticism but you know you've been in these high profile roles for many years now how do you learn to know who to listen to? Whose advice do you, do you listen to and internalize versus the people that are just sort of snarky or that have a particular vested interest that may not be in the best interests of yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about, um, I know all of us need a haircut. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of debate on whether I should cut my hair short again. Um, and I'm telling you, I'm about to do it myself because <laughs> it has been pretty long. Um, and so I'll see that sometimes. Um, I took a lot of abuse during that 2016 presidential election. Um, and I didn't know that it was Russian bots until 2017. And it was hard. I mean, there were times when I felt like just you know, walking away from that career um, or I'd be in like the fetal position under my desk. And, to, and to, it was actually Eric Schmidt of Google who pulled me aside one day when he heard me de describing this and said, Dana, is, they're not real people. This, th th these are not your fellow Americans who don't like you anymore. And that really helped me yeah. have a different perspective. And then I've changed um, like my settings on Twitter. I only look at comments from people I follow. That eliminates abuse almost immediately. And I have friends now who are in the business who will say, oh gosh, people think my show is too much of this or too much of that. I'm like, and, and, they're, and they're basically making decisions based on you know, that, that criticism and that feedback. And I said, just turn that off. Do what you think is right. And it, once you get comfortable knowing that it doesn't matter what they're saying, because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect you and you don't get fired and everything's fine, yeah. you give yourself some room to breathe. Absolutely. So you, a few years ago, wrote your personal story in a book, the best-selling book called And the Good News Is. When I have talked to women on this podcast in particular about writing their own stories and sort of going back through that journey, inevitably they'll say, yeah, I learned, you know, I learned something that I didn't, that I wasn't aware of, or it sort of crystallized for me something about my mm -hmm. story that I hadn't, hadn't thought, I hadn't thought about. Did, did that happen for you? Yeah. What was that? What, what did you learn through the process of articulating your story in that way? I, I, is your firstborn a daughter or a son? 
So Ben, who's 12, and then our, our second is a daughter, Lane Elizabeth. Are you a firstborn daughter? Well, I, well, yes, first and last. I'm an only child. So You're only child. I, I ask only because sometimes in a, in a big audience, like if, we, if I'm talking about my book, I'll ask them, like, is there any firstborn daughter in here? And the ones that raise their hand, like, okay, let me guess. You are over planner, overachiever. You want to make sure everything's perfect. Like, yeah, and everyone nods. Yep. Um, and one of the ways that I think that manifests is that you become somebody who wants to plan out everything and, and to be very organized. Like, okay, so when I am 22, I will have done this. And when I'm 25, I'll have this and 37. Blah, 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 blah. And I had kind of known that my plans had been disrupted by something that God had in mind, like a better plan or a better idea. But when I wrote the book, I looked back at all these little moments of my life that had led to the point where I get to actually write a book that someone would care about reading. Um, everything that I planned did not happen. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, in a way, like what I'm doing now for, uh, for work as a news anchor and an, an analyst and being on Fox News Sunday, like that was like my ultimate goal. I wanted to be somebody who could actually appear on Meet the Press. Um, my sister and I used to have arguments as to what church service we were going to go to on a Sunday because I like to go to the early service and Sunday school and she liked to do Sunday school then the late service so she could sleep in. But if we did early service, I got home in time to watch the Sunday shows. And so I was a nerd from the beginning. But so I think that was the biggest lesson is that I think it's good to have goals, but not restrict yourself so much to a plan that you miss opportunities that might come your way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting because Carly Fiorina gives the exact same advice. I know that your work on the book inspired you to focus on ways that you can help other women. I think you've always done that, but it really maybe crystallized some of the lessons, your own lessons in your mind yeah, definitely. to create this Minute Mentor program with a couple of friends. Talk a little bit about why that was important and what it is that you're trying to accomplish with that. Well, you know, we started the podcast talking about how I felt overstretched and overcommitted. So when I left the White House and I had a little time off and we, Peter and I volunteered at a PEPFAR site in Africa together, felt reset, came back. I got invited to the Bipartisan Congressional Staff Women's Association. It's like the worst name, but it's a great organization yeah. and it's on Capitol Hill. <laughs> and I went there and I think there was about 80 people that RSVP, all women, Republicans and Democrats. And I went through like my top five lessons that I learned at the White House and told stories and things. And then afterwards I agreed to do a photo line. And during the photo line, I think 75 of the 80 people asked me to have coffee, lunch, dinner, something because they wanted more one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Yeah. And I was like, I don't even have time to go to the bathroom right now. So I was walking back uh, to my Capitol Hill house with my friend, Jamie, back, and she's at Latham and Watkins now. And we're walking along and I was talking about this problem that I felt an obligation to, to give back. Um, I wanted to help everybody. But then I realized also, I'm like, when you go to these coffees with these young women, they all have the exact same questions. So then you're repeating yourself over and over again. I said, I wonder if you could ever do an event where it was like speed dating, but mentoring for young people. And you just whip them all through because then like depending on, I, I don't have all the answers, but they all have the exact same questions. And they're usually along the lines of how can I be taken more seriously at the office? Um, how do I make a career transition, especially on Capitol Hill, if you've been a staff assistant or, um, and you want to go into to be the press secretary or uh, you want to go to legislative affairs. 
how can you be taken seriously um, and encouraged to do that? Or this happens all the time. If you've been a scheduler or somebody's personal assistant and you're good at it, they never want to let you go. The work-life balance question, should I go to law school? On and on. Okay, so those are basically all the questions. So she said, well, maybe we could do that. So eventually we started Minute Mentoring and we've had some successful, wonderful events and they're so motivating and wonderful. They're logistically hard to pull off Mm -hmm. because what I do is try to find, um, you know, 30 Laura Kaplan's to all come at the same time on one evening for an event. And then I usually do, so that would be then a hundred mentees and you put them into different groups and you give them 10 to 15 minutes with, with six mentors. And it's a little bit logistically difficult, but it is so wonderful. The other thing we do is because you don't get to see all 30 mentors at the event, I, before you leave, you have to fill up your booklet that we give to you with the advice that they got from the other people. So that means they have to network amongst themselves. That's great. That's really, so it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, we've loved it. Yeah. I love that. And I've learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, inevitably, the more that you have an opportunity to talk about your own story, the more it reveals to you these lessons that, you know, hopefully you're continuing to learn no matter what you're doing, which I think is kind of amazing. It's part of why I love this podcast so much, because I'm always learning not only about the person I'm talking to, but I'm always learning something or, or, you know, gaining perspective. Well, actually got a better answer about work-life balance from Megan O'Sullivan, she worked in National Security Council um, during the war, and we were not at a minute mentoring event. We were at a Bush Center event, and one of the young people raised her hand and said, how do you deal with work-life balance? And she had the best answer. She said, um, I have learned to not think about work-life balance as over the course of a day or a week. Just, I've thought about it over the course of my life. Mm-hmm. So she said when she worked at the White House, she was like, that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We were at war. She worked 18 hours a day, no matter what. She said, I missed birthdays and phone calls and friends and events, but I knew that it was a limited time in my life to give that time. Well, now she um, is at Harvard. She is an author. She's also now a mom. And she said, and now I have a lot of extra time. And I love that because there are times in life when you are going to be working really, really hard, like in the middle of a pandemic, if you work for one of these companies that is trying to provide um, personal protective equipment for medical personnel. Uh, you are going to be working around the clock, but it's not going to be forever. And I really learned something from her that I could pass on to other people as well and to myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's really great advice. So I want to pivot sort of and talk a little bit about life at your house and your baby, <laughs> Jasper. Very near and dear to your heart. I know he's sitting nearby, or he was. When we yeah, started. he now he went over to. He and Lucy have a similar setup. He's got his own chair over there. Oh, good. Yeah, Lucy's sitting. That's a chair for a dog, really. <laughs> right. Okay, so you you wrote a book about Jasper, and I know this was you described this as a chapter that you had actually included in your memoir. The memoir was running long. Your editor said, "Cut it." And you said, oh, it's paining me. But ultimately, you found an opportunity to to write it. When I picked up the book, I thought it was going to be a book just about Jasper. And while it is, it's also a book about connecting with people through pets. Talk to me about this sentiment. You, You describe this so beautifully in the book. Talk about that from your perspective. 
So um, dogs have always been a big part of my life. I, I mentioned um, growing up on a ranch and there were working dogs. Um, There's also one house dog, Mo, who used to get groomed and he hated it. He would, the first thing he would do when he got groomed, he would come home from town and he would go and like ro roll around in a manure pile so that he could <laughs> hang with the other dogs. So it was very funny. He knew. Obviously, um, I've lived in a couple of cities that are uh, generally you find more liberals and conservatives there. Um, I have had a rule for a long time that I don't do politics at the dog park. I don't talk about it ever. Even if people really want to know what I'm thinking about what's going to happen in the election. Sorry, we're at the dog park. Don't talk about it. And I have found just ways to connect with people outside of work that gives me so much joy. And um, like, for example, Donna Brazil and I, we became friends during the White House years because of Hurricane Katrina. Um, but we also connected over our dog. She had Chip Chip, I had Henry at the time, and then she got to know Jasper. And um, I also found that even though we talked about sometimes when you express your personal opinion, it's difficult or you worry about it or it's unpopular. I found that everybody can agree on one thing is that we love our dogs. Yeah. And if you look at all of these, like the, the best stuff that's coming out on the internet during quarantine, it is the funny things that are happening with dogs and the little videos. And it's been a joy to have one Henry when we were at the White House. He was hilarious. He had some tricks he could do that were political. Uh, in 04, I used to ask him, Henry, what do you really think of John Kerry? And I taught him to go get my flip flop and bring it back. That was fantastic. 43 used to love me for me to tell that story. Um, this dog, Jasper, he cannot do many tricks, but he is very smart and he thinks he's a boy. Yeah, funny. <laughs> yeah, it's great. They're just amazing. They're amazing little creatures. So, so many people, as a result of the pandemic, are getting pets right now, um, and that's that's lovely when you think about it. But as a dog owner, we're both dog owners. We also know how much incredible work that they take, even though there's a lot of love in exchange for that work that you're putting in. But what advice do you give for these new dog owners who are embarking on this experience? Some of them for the first yeah. time. Well, I think that one thing that's different, it's not like the Christmas dogs that um, might be cute for a month and then they kick them out. What I've understood is that a lot of people wanted the dogs, one, to be able to go outside during quarantine. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, because, you know, the Police are going to give you a pass and be like, I got to walk my dog. Okay. But it hasn't gotten to that um, draconian measures here in the States as much. But I also think that people were hesitant to get dogs before because they weren't home in order to house train the pet. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they were. Also, I truly believe that children need to learn that responsibility of taking care of another living being. Mm -hmm. And especially for boys, I think. Um, I'm not a mom of a boy. I'm just, I just feel like boys go through a lot and they do it very quietly and they suppress a lot, but their dog, they'll tell the dog anything. Mm -hmm. And they will take care of that dog and the dog takes care of them. And um, some of the best commercials, what was the one, I think it was over Christmas time, where they had the dog that was a puppy with a little boy was there and then they grow up together and yeah. then there's prom and then there's the wedding and the dogs there through the whole thing. Like when I wrote the book about um, Jasper, I also wrote a little bit about Henry and I realized I had had Henry from when I was 26 to 41. Wow. He lived a long time. And he, think of all the things that he lived through with me. Yeah. A marriage in England, a trip to America, 9-11, 
uh, working at the Justice Department, becoming the White House press secretary, figuring out how to leave the White House, then moving to New York. Yeah, Peter's chiming in. He drove across a couple of times. Um, and, and so I do think that it also really brings a family together. Um, I don't know if you guys are like us, but when Peter and I are out together, if we're not with Jasper, we are talking about Jasper. Um, so I mean, maybe that makes us a little weird, but I think other, um, other couples that have dogs, they do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, they become such a big part of your life. I mean, our, our goal with Lucy was to give the kids someone to take care of, you know, this being to take care of. That was certainly the goal. But the problem is Lucy became very attached to me. You? <laughs> so while that's lovely, <laughs> my grand plan of them learning all this responsibility, we're still working on that. Okay, I want to shift. Um, Dana, I know you're a big reader. Our She Said, She Said audience is made up of big readers. We share a lot of book recommendations. Peter's phone. Give me <laughs> your, mo <laughs> your most, either your most recent favorite book or the book that changed your life. I'll let it be your choice. Oh, gosh. Or maybe um, I, I, I read fiction mostly. I read a ton of it. Um, I wouldn't say the books ch changed my life, but I highly recommend to everybody, if you haven't read Ann Patchett's work, start at the beginning and go through. It is the most enrich en enriching experience. And I have had the pleasure to get to know her a little bit. Um, she uh, is in Nashville. She writes, she owns a bookstore called Parnassus. Um, she wrote a book called Patron Saint of Liars. This book is so good. And last December, when I had a chance to be in Nashville, I stopped by Parnassus and she brought me an original signed copy and gave it to me. Oh, how lovely. So meaningful. And I've recommended this book to so many people. And Elena Plot of the New York Times, I recommended it to her. And she tweeted that um, it was the best book that had been recommended to her. So if I could recommend a book, I would say Ann Patchett. And then I would work through the rest of her work. You know, State of Wonder by her is, is really about the, the quest for a vaccine or a pharmaceutical. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, and it, it takes you all the way down into South America and the, and the work there. It's fabulous. fabulous. Yeah, well, we're trying to, you know, I'm trying to ask all the guests who come on for their book recommendations because everyone's looking, especially right now, but always, really, but especially now they're looking for those book recommendations and we're including those in a newsletter that we produce at the oh, end. Oh, good. Where we talk about the episode, provide a few more details than what you may get by listening, and then also these book recommendations and podcasts and other things. Your empire is growing. <laughs> so exciting. So exciting. Okay, last question. Um, I ask everybody who comes on for their best piece of advice, their life hack, or their mantra. Something that you, is sort of your constant go-to. Maybe it's something you wish you had known when you were younger or maybe it's something that you tell other young women when you're doing the minute mentor program what would yours be it's hard to it's hard to choose just one um but i would say for younger people um i'm just begging them please do not worry your young life away mm. because it's not getting you anywhere and I, I go back to that idea of how can you turn worry and fear into energy that you can drive some action um, and to have some fun along the way. I mean, I, I worked a lot. Um, I'm having more fun now, but um, I wish that I hadn't worried so much because the worry got me nothing. That's exactly right. Dana, thank you. Love, this was so fun. I loved seeing you. 
Yeah, you too. To learn more about my guest, Dana Perino, you can check out the show notes for this episode, episode 100. Really excited to celebrate that today. And most importantly, I want to thank all of you for your support and for the investment of your time in She Said, She Said. It is incredibly gratifying to me to have you alongside me for this incredible journey. I learned so much from the amazing women that are kind enough to join me on this podcast, and I hope that you do too. I also love hearing your feedback, your thoughts, your perspectives, topics that you want to hear more about, so please keep that coming. And if you have not had a chance, please be sure to sign up for the weekly She Said, She Said newsletter. I include additional content that complements every episode, and we'll be doing a little bit of a celebration for episode 100 this week. So as always, thanks so much for listening, for investing your time, and for being part of this community. I really appreciate it. Be safe and be well.